just a note to the kids. I, I don't know about other families in here, but I know my kids get asked questions on Sunday night about what is talked about here. And uh, they don't always, they aren't always able to answer those questions. And so we're hoping that changes. And so I would encourage you to use Sunday night, since we don't have an evening service, to revisit what was talked about and try to elicit something from your children of what they might have learned. Sometimes what they hear may be something we didn't hear and we can actually learn from them. But I think it's a great idea to see these note-taking sheets going around and it keeps the kids occupied with something meaningful uh, and not just doodling on a piece of paper. So I encourage you to follow up with that. My children know they're supposed to pay attention this morning and they know they need to be able to answer a few questions tonight, okay? So make sure you do that. All right, we've been in, in the book of Revelation, and for those of you who are visiting, a couple things to keep in mind. I am a long-winded preacher, so I hope you guys are comfortable. We're going to be here for a little while. Uh, that's just the way we are. We're not on a schedule here, and nobody's rushing off to the buffet line because we have lunch here afterwards. So, uh, um, Also, my pulpit is very makeshift, so I'm okay with that. If you guys are okay with it, I don't need some big fancy thing. This works. If it works... It's good. But I wanted to put this outline up here this morning, just kind of a review of what we've been studying. Revelation 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches. Okay, as you study the book of Revelation, you need to remember a very key passage, and that's chapter 1, verse 19. That is the theme of the book. And people get in trouble in their interpretation of this very important book when they fail to see the outline of the book that Christ Himself gives to us. Christ gives John a threefold commission. He tells him He wants him to write down the things which He has seen. That's Revelation chapter 1, the vision of Christ there as the conquering judge and king, not as the weakling Savior hanging on a cross. He says to write the things thou hast seen, the things which are... That means the present. That's Revelation 2 and 3. The messages to the seven churches. And I believe that's a reference to the church age. That means the period of time in human history when God enacts a special program whereby He calls unto Himself a peculiar people called the church, Jew and Gentile alike. That extends from the birthday of the church, which was at what? Pentecost until the time when Christ raptures His church and then turns again to fulfill His promises to Israel violently, albeit prior to the setting up of His kingdom. The things which are, Revelation 2 and 3, and then John is told to write the things which shall be hereafter. And that's Revelation 4 unto the end of the book. And that word hereafter there in the Greek is a reference to hereafter, after the things which are. So those are a reference to the period of time the Bible calls Jacob's trouble in the Old Testament when God pours out His wrath upon this earth in a time of tribulation. That's the rise of Antichrist and the, king of, the kingdom of the beast. It's for two purposes. It's to pour out wrath upon this earth and to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is King. And number two, it's to wake up the nation of Israel and bring them to a point where they have no choice but to see and believe that Christ is Messiah and then to call upon Him at which time He will step into space and time and rescue them from their enemies. The entire nation in that particular day will be saved because they will believe upon Him and then Christ will set up His kingdom. So if we see this outline, we understand what's happening. So in the book naturally fits this outline. So we're in the period of the things which are and we've been studying the seven churches. Now keep in mind, I've said this many times, I'm going to say it again, and it corresponds with how Old Testament prophecy works. If you ever study Old Testament prophecy, you'll see that it has an immediate fulfillment, but its fulfillment goes beyond that immediate fulfillment. It's also got an ultimate fulfillment. When Isaiah the prophet prophesied of the virgin who would conceive and bear a son in Isaiah 7, that prophecy was given to King Ahaz in his day. King Ahaz, who was facing two enemies, the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria, 
And he was afraid. And God was sent to tell him, ask of me a sign. And then he tried to act all self-righteous and said, I'm not going to ask the Lord of a sign. He was a wicked king. And Isaiah prophesied that a virgin would conceive and before this child was old enough to know the difference between right and wrong or between his right and his left hand, both Israel and Syria, your enemies, would, be removed of, would have their kings removed and they would no longer be a threat. Then in the very next chapter, Isaiah chapter 8, it says that Isaiah went into the prophetess. He married a woman, a virgin, and they bore a child whose name was Mahershalahashbaz, and the name of that was exactly what was being referred to in Isaiah 7. So that was immediately fulfilled when Isaiah took a virgin to wife and bore a son. And before that child was old enough to know right and wrong, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria were no longer a threat. But we know that prophecy went beyond that day and was fulfilled in Christ. So the same thing happens here. We have churches that existed in John's day, local churches that existed in his day, most of which weren't mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. So it's evidence that the early Christians were about the work of the Great Commission beyond Paul. Because the planting of most of these churches had nothing to do with Paul. Ephesus did. But Sardis, we're going to talk about today, is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. And that was in a pagan stronghold. But yet the Christians went there and planted a church. In fact, for many years, there was a church located right by the pagan temple of Artemis there in Sardis. Archaeology has unearthed that. So, the early Christians were about the work of the Great Commission. But these were local churches in John's day. They're also types. The Bible is full of types. Okay, Go back to the days of the flood. You have Enoch who was translated out of a wicked, evil time. And then you have Noah who was preserved through a period of God's wrath. Enoch was a type of the church. He was one day and then he was not. Raptured out. Saved from judgment. Noah was a type of Israel, preserved through judgment, as Israel will be during that time of tribulation. But these churches are types of churches that exist at all times in the church age. If you read these messages, you'll probably think about churches you know or have been a part of that might fit these categories. Be careful though, because it very well may be talking about you. I had a horrifying thought this week as I studied this message concerning myself concerning foolproof gospel ministries. Is Christ talking to me here? Local churches in John's days, John's day types of churches that exist at all times, but it goes beyond that. I believe, as Revelation is prophetic, that these messages are also a prophetic foreview of the church age. Now, in the day this was written, that could not be seen, but we're on the other side of history looking back. And as you study church history, you will see that these messages just chronologically characterize periods of church history. And so I've been touching on that somewhat. Ephesus, the backslidden church, had left its first love. That is a primary description of the apostolic church up until the days of John when it began to grow lax in A.D. 100. That's why he wrote 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Look what he says to the churches in those messages. Then you have the suffering church, Smyrna. There was no condemnation to this church. This was the period of persecution that the church suffered under the Roman emperors. And it's interesting because Christ tells Smyrna they would suffer persecution for ten days. There were ten official persecutions executed by Roman emperors in this time period. Then you have the church at Pergamos, which was the tolerant church. False teaching was being tolerated. And it was the church married to the world or settled down in the world. A.D. 312, the Edict of Milan, when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, persecution was no longer a factor. And the church became settled in the world. In Rome, they had been burning incense to Venus. And when Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire, they just changed a few names and started burning it to Mary. And a lot of the things we, a lot of the idolatrous and paganist ritual that we see in Catholicism and in some Protestantism today goes back to that marrying of the church officially with Babylonian paganism. And this goes up until AD 607, which was an important event in the history of the church. 
the Byzantine emperor recognized the bishop of Rome officially as the head of the church, as the universal bishop of the church. That's an important event. Thyatira, the unrepentant church. You read that message and undoubtedly that's Catholicism in all of its glory of the dark ages. A.D. 607 until A.D. 1517. When did the Thyatira church age end and what happened on October 31st, 1517? Anybody know? Martin Luther did a very bold thing. As a Catholic priest, he'd been studying the Scriptures and saw that when Catholicism said we must do penance, the Bible says repent. And his life was changed and he did a very bold thing and thus began the Reformation. Today we're at the letter to the church at Sardis. Finally we finished Revelation 2 and we're starting a new chapter this morning. I'm excited. Sardis is the dead church. You have a name or a reputation that you are living, but Christ says you're dead. Now keep in mind, when we think of dead churches, we often think of liturgical, boring churches where we, the music is somber and we can hardly keep our head up when the preacher's preaching. I hope I'm not that type of preacher. But that's not the type of dead being talked about here. Make no mistake, Christ said you have a name or a reputation that you are living. So to the others or to the world, you're living. But to me, you're dead. And it's an amazing picture of the Protestant Reformation. I believe this is a prophetic foreview of that Reformation period, A.D. 17 to about 1730. What happened in the 1730s? in Europe and the United States. Anybody know? People started to wake up. That dead Sardis church woke up. The first great awakening. Ministries of Whitfield and Edward and Wesley. Then you had that, the period of Philadelphia. We haven't gotten into these churches yet. Philadelphia is the charitable church. The church of brotherly love. And we're going to see that brotherly love or charity ultimately translates into what happened during this period of 1730 to 1900. The great revivals, the great missionary movements that saw the gospel go into all the world, the translation of the scriptures into multitudes of languages. And this goes to 1901. There's a very interesting event that took place in 1901 in England. And from that point, things began to change into the, in the church. I'm not going to talk about that today. And then we have the Laodicean church, which is the lukewarm church. And I believe that's the period we're living in today, about 1901 until Christ comes for His church. And so it's interesting how when you study history, all these things fit together. We cannot ignore the prophetic foreview element here. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the Reformation today, something that we look at and see as a great period in which the church was living. But there are elements in which it was dead. And it did not complete or fulfill what Christ had called it to do. So what's the application today? Are you alive or dead? To be alive is not just to believe on Christ. It's to fulfill what He's commissioned you to do. And so we're going to look at this passage this morning. Revelation chapter 3, but we're going to look at it initially by turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 9 through 11. A fitting introduction to Revelation chapter 3. Keep in mind we're talking about the Reformation church period in the past. I've stuck with the text and then I've given you some interesting historical events that took place during that period. I'm going to kind of mix it all up this time because it's interesting how it goes together. 2 Corinthians 8 verses 9-11. through 11. And I, This really spoke to me a couple weeks ago as the elders were teaching about tithing and teaching about stewardship. Never seen this before, and I preached from verse 9 Friday night in Hickory. Because verse 9 is an amazing description of how the gospel differs from religion. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he was God, he was rich beyond anything we can imagine, yet for your sakes, look at that, for your sakes. Now, the gods of man-made religion, trust me, I've lived in Muslim countries, I've studied the Quran, I've talked to the imams in the mosque, I've, I've lived in Hindu and Buddhist uh, context, I've studied the writings of Buddha, I've talked to Hindus. Their gods don't do what they do for the, our sakes. They do it for their sakes. 
In fact, there's an old Nepali proverb that speaks about Shiva, the patron deity of Nepal. He's known as the destroyer. He's got blue skin and six or eight arms. And we know him as Satan. It's the same persona. But this proverb says, if Shiva does it, it's a miracle. And it benefits him. If we do the exact same thing in our lives, it's called rape. And we get in trouble. So, the gods of man-made religion don't do anything for our sakes. They do it for themselves. And even the proponents of these religions will admit that. Talk to any Muslim and his understanding of Allah of the Quran. Allah does what He wants to do for Himself. And you better submit and fall down. Well, God does what He wants to do, absolutely. But much of what He does, He's done for us. For our sakes. Amazing. For your sakes, He became poor. Jesus took on the form of human flesh, Philippians 2, and became poor for our sakes. That we, or you, through His poverty might be rich. Wow, that's an amazing truth that religion does not have. Okay? And in light of that truth, look what Paul goes on to say. And herein I give my advice. For this is expedient for you. He's writing to a wealthy church at Corinth who had made some commitments in terms of giving. Who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. In other words, a year ago you guys made a commitment and you began to do it. Now this is talking about giving, but we're going to go beyond that here. But I don't want to ignore the immediate context. Now therefore, verse 11, perform the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which you have. So what we have here is a church that had a readiness to will in terms of fulfilling a commitment. They even began to do it, but here it is a year later, and Paul's having to say, when are you going to perform that which you were committed to? When are you going to complete the work that God gave you? And that's exactly what we're dealing with in Sardis. The church at Sardis was given a commission both in history and in the local church and in the churches today. And there were some amazing things that happened because of their readiness to will, their willingness, and they begun to that work. But that work was not finished. It was not completed. It did not come to fruition. Jesus said to Sardis, He said, your works are not yet perfect. Perfect doesn't mean without, you know, I mean, without blemish per se in the sense of the sinlessness. It means fully developed, finished, complete. I've not found your work complete before God. You've become dead. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, are we bringing the work that Christ has commissioned us to in our lives to fruition or development? Or have we fallen into a dead, lifeless thing that may look alive to the world and to the others in the church, but it's dead because we're living in disobedience? I had a long-time friend. Sad to say, I don't enjoy that relationship anymore, but it wasn't of my choosing, who time and time again told me throughout the years that he believed God had called him to ministry, but was continuing to live as if he did not have that call and made no effort whatsoever to follow it and was readily willing to admit that. So in other words, every time that came up, he was admitting, I'm living in disobedience to the Lord and not fulfilling what He's called me to do and I'm content to continue doing that. That's a scary thought. It may be the reason for why there were certain problems that he had to deal with and problems that ultimately forced me to have to separate from this, this, this friend. But that's a scary place to be. Are we not only failing to accomplish what God, through, you know, in Christ's power, by the way, what He's commissioned us to do, are we content to just be sitting there? How many of us have begun, or we've made a commitment, and we've started to do it, but we've been distracted and become dead? Those are the things we need to think about before we stand in too much judgment on men of God that were undoubtedly used by Him to stand up against the ecclesiastical monster that was the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages. It's easy to pass judgment on men like Luther and Calvin and other guys who God used to do some amazing things, mainly the preservation of the Scriptures. And they made some big mistakes. We need to ask ourselves if we've done the same thing. How many of us have been caught in politics? And it's our politics that keep us from doing what the Lord wants us to do. Or we're more concerned about our reputation 
than about the truth of God's Word. Or we're more concerned about paying the bills than we are about following through with the commitment we've made to the Lord in terms of giving. Or we're more concerned about doing things with man-made strategy than trusting the Lord. See, there were certain things that the Reformers believed had to happen if they were going to gain the political power that they thought was necessary to overthrow the Catholic Church. And so there were things they knew the Bible said to be true but didn't go that far because they were afraid they would lose the political backing of their peers. Man-made strategy. So what did God do? This became dead and He did something in the, seven, in the 18th and 19th centuries that man-made strategy can't explain. We're back to that man-made strategy today where we think we have to do certain things to be effective instead of falling on God and the truth of His Word. God's strategies, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, don't make sense to men. And what happened in this period were some amazing tales of revival, entire cities coming to Christ. And it was with quote-unquote strategy that make no sense to us today. Because God did it. The Reformation it got to the point they relied on their own strength. Today we're relying on our own effectiveness when we should fall upon the Lord. That's why I really like what was shared this morning because it fits right into what we're talking about. But do you have a readiness to will? Have you begun to perform what God has asked you to do? I don't know what that is. Maybe God's calling you to the mission field and you're not willing to submit. Maybe God's calling you to give to something but you're too concerned about your bills. Maybe God's called you to quit a job and wait on Him. Maybe God's called you to sit here in Hickory, North Carolina and listen. Are you doing, are you performing what you've begun to do? If we're unwilling to do what Paul tells us to do here, we're going to find ourselves here. So what a fitting introduction. Let's turn to Revelation 3. I thought I was going to get through this message next week before I go to South America, but it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. When I talk about the Reformation in church history, what I'm referring to is a period of time in church history where men like Martin Luther, men like Zwingli, Calvin, other men that you probably wouldn't recognize their names if I shared, when they stood against the tyranny of the Roman Catholic state churches and came out of it. The birth of many quote-unquote Protestant denominations came from this period of time. Even though most of these men didn't seek to create a denomination with their name on it. You know, many of these men would never approved. They'd turn over in their grave if they knew that there was a denomination today with their name attached to it. But that's this period of time roughly between A.D. 1517 and 1730, when the power of the Catholic Church that kept Europe in the Dark Ages crumbled and set the stage for a great revival and missionary movement that God would use to draw many people to Himself from many nations. Here are some amazing results. Before we become critical, let's talk about some amazing things that God did during the Reformation. What happened is the Roman Catholic control, political control was overthrown in Europe. This brought Western civilization out of the Dark Ages. And as a result, the experiment that later became the United States of America, which would be a light to the world for many years, that foundation was laid with the Reformation. You can't teach American history without starting with Pentecost, tracing the church, Tracing the idea of liberty of conscience, which is so tied to the New Testament. Tracing the preservation of God's Word. And going through the Reformation. You can't teach American history without that. <laughs> when I taught American history at a Christian school, we started A.D. 30, Pentecost. And that's why I only got up to World War... <laughs> I barely got up to World War I by the end of the year. So, um, I don't know. We need to extend the school year or something. It's hard to teach all of that. Um, so, we had this overthrow. Number two widespread circulation and distribution of the Scriptures in the vernacular languages. That means the languages of the people. Something that people in Europe did not have prior. There was a time in the Dark Ages when maybe 
In existence at one time, there were 15 complete Bibles, maybe, in the entire world. Complete. Old New Testaments. And these would have been written in Latin, mostly, and most people couldn't understand it. During the Reformation, the Bible was translated out of pure text that God's Holy Spirit directed down through the centuries, preserved through uh, uh, martyred and persecuted brethren that hardly have been remembered by anything other than their martyrdom, and then brought it to light. More important than what Luther did on October 31st, 1517 in Wittenberg, nailing to the, the theses to the door, what was the most important thing God used him to do? Anybody know? It wasn't those theses, trust me. Wasn't. It wasn't here I stand so help me God at the Diet of Worms. Luther ended up being under quote-unquote house arrest for, several, for a long period of time. One of the German princes did it for his protection to protect him from being murdered. And while he sat there in that upper room, he had countless hours where we would have thought, boring, I'm doing nothing for the Lord. What did he do during that time? He translated the entire Bible into German. And that Luther's Bible is the foundation of the German nation and was used to point many German-speaking people to Christ. He probably thought, what am I doing here? I'm stuck in a room. And that ended up being the most important aspect of what God used him to do. Calvin was instrumental in the Bible getting into French the Bible getting into a faithful Greek text being preserved. And he was instrumental in the people he surrounded himself with even the Bible being translated into English. The Italian as well. Um, so the circulation, widespread distribution of the Scriptures and the vernaculars. Another important fruit of the Reformation was political fragmentation. Guys, when politics fragments and falls apart, the door for the gospel swings wide open, historically speaking. That's why in Nepal today, there's such an open door to preach the gospel. Back in 1999, when my wife and I first went to Nepal, there was a king, it was a Hindu nation, and you had to be very careful. No way I could preach in the streets back then. Uh-uh. We had to even be careful when we were transporting tracks that it looked like it was beer or apples or something else in these boxes. But the king and his family were brutally murdered, his brother came to the power. They think his brother was behind it. He was corrupt. The communists started raising up in groups out in the villages and they started terrorizing the people and eventually got into Kathmandu and the king was kicked out. And all of a sudden, the, the, the government fell apart and then they came together with multiple political parties controlled by the communists and nobody can ever agree on anything and they've been trying to write a constitution for seven, eight years and the government's completely fragmented. Well, all of a sudden, there's no time to pay attention to the church and the door of the gospel has been swung wide open. And now you can preach in the streets. If you've got Hindus that start to make trouble, you can start saying, look, this isn't a Hindu country. There's Maoists that live here. There's Buddhists that live here. And then you've got the Maoists and the Buddhists on your side. And you can preach the gospel. So political fragmentation in Europe caused the gospel to spread. So we need to think about that when we think about our nation falling apart. You know, we want a strong nation as it was in the 80s, but political fragmentation in government can be a tool to open the door for the gospel. God's ways are higher than our ways. Another important result, the Reformation sowed seeds of a desire to seek a new world. And what an amazing event that was in history. It wasn't the Catholics that first established a beachhead at St. Augustine, Florida. That's what the history book says. No. You know who it was? You know who got to Florida first and had already set up a city and had already begun preaching the gospel to the Indian, the Native Americans? It was the French Huguenots. Martyred, massacred, St. Bartholomew's Day massacre in France. The Huguenots were, they didn't call themselves Baptists, but they were Baptistic. Their doctrine reflected a New Testament faith, believers' baptism. Salvation by grace through faith, the authority of God's Word. They fled France and came to a place in Florida called Fort Caroline. And they built this fort, Fort Caroline. And the story says that when the Spanish landed at Florida, they were very soon thereafter encountered by Native Americans who attempted to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And what did the Catholics do? Massacred them. Found out where that gospel came from that Reformation gospel, that biblical gospel, and then they went up and massacred the French Huguenots at Fort Caroline. It's right there off the I-95 on the way to Florida. So it was this seeking of a new world by those who believed the gospel. And they came here and preached the gospel. 
And then it became dead and with state churches and all that and there was a revival that was needed. So those were seeds that were sown that led to the founding of this nation which was a light to the, to the Gentiles. And then finally, and this goes hand in hand, it laid the foundation for a great missionary movements that took place in the 18th and 19th century. But the Protestant Reformation did lapse into a cold, formless, lifeless thing because of a failure to fulfill what it had been commissioned, the church had been commissioned to do. And that's why there was an awakening needed. God said, okay, you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And there came a great revival. And the great revival preachers that we laud were kicked out of their churches in their day. Someone told George, George Whitfield, the churches are closed to you, brother. What are you going to do? He said, bless God, the fields are open. George Whitfield didn't preach behind a pulpit in a church. He preached in the field. He preached in the public plaza in Boston. These men were hated by the church, the dead churches. But from their ministries and from the Holy Spirit, a great revival took place in the early 1700s and up around the early 1800s. And guess what the fruit of those revivals were? Big Protestant state churches? No. The fruit of those revivals at the hands of Protestant preachers used by Jesus Christ was Baptist churches. <laughs> it's interesting how that happened in, in church history. Of course, today there's so many Baptist churches that don't know anything about their heritage. They don't even believe the Bible. And they don't even teach the New Testament faith. So there's really nothing in a name. I'm not here about names. That's why I like to use that word Baptistic as opposed to Baptist. So when we read this passage, let's read Revelation 3. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write... These things saith he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect. That means complete before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." What a graphic description this is of dead Protestantism that perhaps we ourselves have been a part of. Content to be. With all its denominational programs, world leaders, imposing buildings, a reputation without reality. As I, as I thought about this this week, I thought, thou has the name that you live. In other words, people think you're alive. I often read emails or, or comments on our website that just talk about how appreciative people are for our ministry and how encouraged they are by this or that. Or, you know, you're such a. I've had people say to me, you know, you're like a Paul, the apostle of the, of the 21st century. And I hate to hear that because I am not. And this sense of horror came over me as I thought about that the other day. Are you one? that has a name that you live. People think you're some great missionary. They think you're some great apostolic preacher, but you are dead. Maybe foolproof gospel ministries has a name that it lives, but it's dead. This sense of horror came over me as I thought about that. Do I have a reputation without reality? I know that some of the things people look at me and say, I know they're not real. Because I know what I am. I'm a broken vessel. And besides, why should I be commended for doing what an unprofitable servant is supposed to do? What his Lord commands him. But we need to ask ourselves this question. And if, we, if a sense of horror comes over us, and we ask ourselves that question, and be willing to hear the answer, and that's a good sign. Because the church at Sars wasn't willing to hear the answer. They had no clue. But could this be me? During the period of Protestant Reformation, many came out of Rome. The Scriptures went into the hands of the people and the seeds of great revival and missionary activity were sown. 
But sadly, if you study this period, the Reformation became more of a struggle for political liberty and consolidation of political power than a purely Christian movement. Go study the founding of the Church of England, King Henry VIII, and why he wanted to break away from the Roman Catholic Church. Do you think it was over doctrine? No. It's because the Pope wouldn't grant him a divorce so he could marry a, young, a young, pretty young thing who he ultimately beheaded. And so he just said, okay, I'll just establish our church and I'll get the blessings of my own priest and I don't care what the Pope says. Now, God did some amazing things out of the Church of England later as a result of that. But you look at some of the doctrine they held on to, it had nothing to do with biblical truth, at least where the king was concerned. Now, there's an interesting story about King Henry on his deathbed. He wasted away because he had syphilis. It's a womanizer, wicked man. But as he laid on his deathbed, and you won't find this in the history books, Thomas Cranmer, one of the bold preachers from the Church of England, came into his room by his bed and laid out the gospel straight up to this man who was so feared by many, but laid awake in bed, wasting away. And it was one of those, are you trusting, are you repenting and trusting Christ experiences where his eyes got really wide and he squeezed Cranmer's hand so hard it about fell off. So a chance God saved that man. You won't see that in history books. Interesting. God can save a man in his last seconds of life if he desires, because it's not about works, it's about God's grace and mercy. And praise God for that, but don't be banking on that. Don't be banking on that. Today is a day of salvation. Most well-known reformers got caught up in this political, uh, this political uh, movement and they fell short of completing what God had begun in them. For political reasons, sadly, many of these Protestant denominations held on to traits of their Catholic mother like infant baptism. Unbiblical. State church theocracies that ran civil government like the worst legalistic church you could even imagine. In Calvin's Geneva, people were banished for wearing shorts that were just a little bit too short. If the woman's hair wasn't cut just right, they were banished to the wilderness. If your doctrine didn't match exactly what the government in, in Geneva wanted it to be, you might even get burned at the stake. A lot of this stuff happened and when things got out of control and Calvin couldn't do anything to stop it, so he just had to kind of go along with it. That's wicked too. Doesn't mean God didn't use him. Doesn't mean he wasn't saved. Don't mean we won't see men like that in heaven. But man, we can make some stupid mistakes that have long-term consequences. Baptismal regeneration, the idea that the act of baptism saves you, that's a Catholic trait they held on to. Persecution. The Reformation hope of many turned to bloody delusion as even in the Reformation, Baptistic Bible believers now were, faced, now were forced to face persecution on three fronts. Not just the world, not just the Catholic Church, but the Protestant denominations. Did you know that John Calvin wrote a letter to King Edward VI of England assuring the king that I am not an Anabaptist? In other words... I'm not one of those that believes in believer's baptism and that you really ought to have these Anabaptists put to death. That was his advice to King Edward VI. Persecution. You can't find that in the Scriptures. I have no right to ever persecute someone for what they believe. We're called to preach the Gospel. That's why I think the Muslim imam has every, much, every bit of every bit as much right to preach his false teaching on a street corner as I do. And I will fight for his right to do it. Because in a society where men are free to hear God speaking to their conscience, the gospel will thrive. And that's what our founding fathers in America believed. If it weren't for some Virginia Baptists, there would be no Bill of Rights in the Constitution. There's an old tree up in central Virginia where John Leland, that Baptist preacher, had a meeting with James Madison and secured a guarantee from the author of the first draft of the Constitution that there would be freedom of religion if they would just elect him as a delegate. And Madison fulfilled his word. He did something politicians today don't do. They tell you they're going to do something, and then they don't. In many ways, the Reformers violated Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Be ye kind, tenderhearted to one another. That talks about to your brothers in Christ. Forgiving even as Christ has forgiven you. It became a war over doctrine to where men like Ulrich Zwingli ended up having his own students put to death that stood behind him. 
when he stood against Catholicism. And he knew believers' baptism was what the Scriptures taught. And his, his students took it to its logical conclusion. But he knew he would lose the political backing of his peers. So he ended up having his own students put to death for political reasons. Wicked. Who knows where that word Protestant came from? I wrote something on Facebook this week you might find interesting. I'm just going to read it. I was preaching recently at a, at a college campus and someone said, well, what are you, Catholic or Protestant? I said, I'm, I'm not either one of those. They got so angry. You have to be a one or the other. Oh, you're not a Christian. I'm just a Bible believer. They couldn't handle it. It's funny. I wrote, a, wrote this this week. Maybe this will be a blessing to you. My dear Bible-believing friends, please consider that the term Protestant was originally coined to label a group of Lutheran German princes who lodged a political protest against the pro-Catholic Diet of Spire, which was overseen by the Catholic Emperor Charles V in 1529. It was a political protest. In like fashion, it was politics that convinced Ulrich Zwingli, a reformer, to turn on his Anabaptist students. It was politics that led John Calvin to do everything in his power to distance himself from the label of Anabaptist. That means believer's baptism. And then to advise King Edward VI of England to put, him, put them to death. It was politics that pressured Martin Luther to sign a memorandum authored by Philip Melanchthon in 1536, one that issued the death penalty for the practice of believer's baptism even though Luther privately had confessed that the Anabaptist position on baptism was scripturally correct. Baptistic Bible believers are not Protestants. They never have been historically nor ever will be. Our heritage, my friends, is not one of protest but of preaching. Remember this before you get too caught up in the politics of the hour. This only leads to the dead, lifeless thing that the Reformation and Protestantism eventually became. Thus the need for the Holy Spirit revivals in the 18th and 19th centuries. And guess what those great revivals produced in droves more than anything else? Not Protestant state church theocracies like the failed experiment in legalism that was the Puritans in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Go study that. But Baptistic... Notice I didn't say Baptist. Baptistic, Bible-believing local churches that would catch a vision for the Great Commission and missions to the ends of the earth. Then sadly came Laodicea and the mess we have today. Church history really is an amazing teacher. How many renowned men of God, even in our generation, have become caught up in politics? So much so that what they began has become a dead and lifeless Sardis thing. Praise God for men like Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, mostly because of the role they played in the preservation, translation, and publication of the pure text of Holy Scripture, thus resulting in the Bible getting into the hands of the common man, one of the greatest results of the Reformation. But these were just men. And no Christian should ever define himself in terms of a man or in terms of a political protest. We shouldn't define ourselves as Protestants. It's even to the point where defining ourselves as Baptists has its own set of problems. We should define ourselves according to the New Testament. Sardis. Remember last week I said, you know, I never could understand why a church would call itself Sardis based on this letter. There is no commendation from the Lord. Actually, there is a subtle commendation. There is one. We're going to see it. It's a commendation that we should covet ourselves. It is there. But why in the world would a church call itself Sardis? Because Sardis was the dead church. So we've got a Sardis Evangelical Lutheran church out by where I live. And John said there was one over in Cheryl's Ford. But the word means remnant or escaping one. And with that in mind, I guess I could understand why it has a positive connotation. There was a remnant at Sardis. A few. At Thyatira, this remnant was called the rest. Here is a few. Here it is a few. Where was this place called Sardis? Sardis, it's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. It was about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, 50 miles east of Smyrna. See, the letters of the seven churches kind of follow a horseshoe-shaped pattern in John's local sphere of influence. We're not talking about great distances here. 
It was the ancient capital of the kingdom of Lydia. It was an important city in the Persian Empire and it was revived during Roman times as a center of pagan worship. The temple of Artemis was there. It was built in the 4th century B.C. And what went on in that temple? We have children in here. I can't describe to you. Wicked. And lots of temple orgies and all kinds of sexual grossness that went on in the name of religion took place in this temple. Temple prostitutes, homosexuality, temple orgies. In A.D. 17, Sardis was destroyed by a great earthquake, but it was rebuilt and revived as a wealthy manufacturing center as it was in John's day. They manufactured textiles there, dye, jewelry trade was big in Sardis. There was a Christian church building discovered by archaeologists that was built adjacent to this temple of Artemis. And in a way, that was a showed us that there was a post-apostolic witness even in that wicked town. And that the Great Commission was carried out by early Christians even apart from the Apostle Paul. He doesn't mention Sardis. But average Christians, mostly driven out of Jerusalem by persecution, went forth preaching the Word and churches were planted by average believers. You don't have to be a great missionary or seminary-educated pastor to be used by God to plant a church. The fact that there was a church in Sardis, one of the darkest places of the day, is evident that God uses average believers. Make, do not make the mistake of thinking you're not qualified based upon the commission of Jesus Christ to be used by Him. With or without a seminary education. I'm so thankful for my seminary education. But that's not what makes me qualified to share the gospel. It's Jesus Christ and His commission. Average Christians... This Christian witness did remain in the city until about the 14th century when the Turks swept through the area. And it was there, but it was really never prominent because it lapsed into a dead, lifeless thing. So history, even in Sardis, happened just as it was written here. By 1850, the city was completely uninhabited. Completely abandoned. Just like those archaeological ruins in the southwest. Nobody knows why those cities built into the clefts of the rock at Mesa Verde and all of these other places are just abandoned. It's a great mystery of history. Sardis was abandoned. Today, there's just a small town in Turkey named Sort uh, that's lit, uh, located nearby. Interesting. Let's look at the text. This is introduction. I'm sorry. I just like to throw some of that out there because you guys, it give you a fuller understanding of what's happening. We have the salutation here. Each letter is begun by a greeting and unto the angel of the church of Sardis write these things say he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Who is this speaking? It's Jesus Christ. Remember the vision John had in chapter 1? He described these various aspects of Jesus Christ. And with each successive letter, one of these aspects is highlighted for the particular church because it speaks to the problem of the specific church. Here Christ is defined as the one that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. One of the other churches was reminded that Christ held those seven stars in His hand. Which church was that? It was Ephesus. What were the seven stars in the hand of Christ? Defines for us right there in Revelation 1. We don't have to guess. It was the angels or the messengers or the quote-unquote pastors, per se, of those churches. The leaders of those churches. Christ held them in His hand. Just as no one could pluck them out of His hand, so they could not escape His gazing eyes of judgment. Ephesus was reminded that He that held the seven stars walked in the midst of the candlesticks, which were, were the churches, and that he knew the truth. And here, Sardis, the dead church with a reputation for life, was being addressed by him not only with the seven stars, but with the seven spirits of God. In Revelation chapter 1, the seven spirits of God are described as being before the throne. Here, those seven spirits of God are described as being possessed by Jesus Christ. And last time I talked about these seven spirits, what are they? 
The seven spirits of God is the sevenfold Holy Spirit. And where does this come from? Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. This is a prophecy. Remember last week I was telling you how somebody said to me, how can you believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ because there's only one obscure verse in the book of Revelation that talks about the millennial reign, the thousand year reign. I said, no my friend, you, make a, you gravely err. Revelation chapter 20 tells us the time period but the millennial reign of Christ is throughout the Old Testament time and time again. Isaiah chapter 11 is a primary example of where the millennial king is being described. Isaiah 11 verse 2. And look at this. This spirit here. This sevenfold spirit. This is being written of Messiah. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Sevenfold spirit right there. What is the Holy Spirit? He's the spirit of the Lord. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. That's a character description of the Holy Spirit. And guess who it is that rests upon Messiah the King? The Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit shall make Him, that is Messiah, of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and He shall not judge after the sight of His eyes. That's what judges do today. Neither reprove after the hearing of His ears, but with righteousness shall He judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and He shall smite the earth with the rod of His mouth, and with the breath of His lips shall He slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of His loins, and faithfulness the girdle of His reins, Look at verse 6. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. When is this going to happen? This is talking about the millennial reign of Christ when the curse is removed and the lion lays down with the lamb. That's when the millennial king will rule with the sevenfold Spirit of God. So what is God telling the church of the Protestant Reformation? What is He telling the dead church at... What's Christ reminding the dead church at Sardis? Hey, look. This is the millennial king talking to you. What did the reformers get away from teaching during the Reformation more than anything else? They got away from teaching the second coming of Christ. This idea of Christ literally and physically coming to set up a kingdom as promised to Israel was forgotten and swept aside. And these false doctrines that began in Catholicism of post-millennialism and amillennialism and covenant theology that says the church has replaced Israel, that God has divorced Israel and He's not going to fulfill those promises to Him. They're going to be, be fulfilled spiritually in the church. That's where these doctrines, they began in Rome with Pergamos and they were carried over into a lot of the Reformers' doctrine in the Reformation churches. They set aside that teaching of the coming of Christ to set up a kingdom. And so Christ is saying, look, this coming king that you don't talk about anymore, he's the one that's speaking to you. The one with the sevenfold spirit, that's me. The millennial king. Reformed theology, my friends, rejects the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. They don't believe in it. They believe that we're living in the millennium. They believe that the church has been commissioned by Jesus to take over the world, thus ushering in the coming of Christ. That's what Catholicism believed, and that's why it sought to take over Europe. And if you didn't believe Roman Catholic doctrine, you were burned at the stake. That post-millennial theology is dangerous. It justifies all sorts of things in the name of Christ that Christ Himself would not justify. So the millennial king is talking to the church at Sardis. The one with the seven spirits of God. That's the millennial king in Isaiah chapter 11. See how you can cross-reference the Scriptures and get a full picture? He's not only the one with the seven spirits, He's the one with the seven stars. The seven stars represent the leaders or the messengers of those seven churches. These leaders... Not only the church, but its leaders must give account to Christ. Not to a human representative, but to Christ. Think about this in view of the politics that ultimately influenced the reformers. They were more concerned about having the protection of the British, of the German princes, 
or the favor of the English king, perhaps then understanding that they were held in Christ's hand and He was the one they answered to, not a pope or a bishop, but to Christ. This picture of Christ here in verse 1 is a picture of a judge who judges according to truth. Not by the sight of his eyes or the hearing of his ears, which can deceive us, but according to righteousness and truth as pictured there in Isaiah 11. The church at Sardis lost that hope of a future return of Christ. It wasn't looking forward anymore. It was focusing only on the here and now. And if we lose that hope of the coming Christ, we'll be caught up in the here and now. And so, to Sardis, Christ gave them a taste of His judicial character that will ultimately smite the earth when He comes as King. Reminded them that, look, I'm a coming King. You should be looking forward, not behind. You need to look behind concerning the things you've received and heard, but you need to look forward in terms of fulfilling what you've been commissioned to do. Is Christ saying that to us today? I know it's 12.30. Let me just finish up verse 1 here. The indictment. Salutation 1a, the indictment 1b. I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. The actions and testimony of the church... They're an open book to the omniscient Lord. Nothing is hid from His gaze. See, Sardis had a name that it was alive. That means it had a reputation of being alive. In the eyes of the church today and church historians, as we look at history, the Reformation was a period of life. Many churches today that look successful on the outside are seen as an alive church. We want to model ourselves after this church. It's alive. But it's possible to be alive not only to the world, but to fellow believers, but, and to be dead to Christ. You have a name that lives to man or to others. You, maybe you're effective in the eyes of man. Maybe the church was spiritual and blessed in the eyes of men. But Jesus said, you're dead. To God, you're dead. How many of us think that church growth is an automatic sign that God is blessing a church? That's what we've been taught to believe. In fact, there are those today that are darlings in terms of the books they write to many evangelical churches who would say, I'm right, look at my church, look how we've grown. Church growth is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. That might be a name that thou livest, but maybe you're dead. It's not a sign of God's blessing when growth isn't genuine born-again believers them that overcome but something else, like what Jesus addresses at Thyatira. Today, church growth can be more of a curse than a blessing. Here, dead is not boring, lifeless as we think of dead churches. Dead to Christ could be, and in this case was, what was thought to be alive. In a way, it was similar to the condemnation that Jesus gives Laodicea. Similar but different. Similar states. You're one, you think you're one thing, but you're something else. But different causes. What did Christ tell Laodicea? Thou sayest thou art rich and increased with goods and all of this stuff, but you're really poor, blind, miserable, wretched, and naked. You're lukewarm. Sardis wasn't saying that about itself. This was their reputation to the outside. Christ said, you're dead. Laodicea said, look at me, I'm this. Christ said, no, you're not. A little bit different. Why? The reason why Sardis had a name that it was alive but was really dead is because of unfulfilled ministry. Look at verse 2. You have a name that you're living but you're dead and I have not found verse 3. Verse 2, your work's perfect before God. Perfect means complete. Laodicea's problem was pride. You say this about yourself. Pride, covetousness, the way of Balaam who loved the fruit or the works of unrighteousness or the wages of unrighteousness. How much of the church today is covetous 
We want these buildings. We want these salaries, these programs. Laodicea was self-focused, pride covetousness. Sardis had a reputation, but was dead because of an unfulfilled commitment. Your works are not complete before God. It leads to the same place. Praise God for the reformers who preached justification by faith, the authority of the Scriptures, sola scriptura, and took a stand against that ecclesiastical monster. Luther didn't fear for his life. Luther was willing to die. Calvin was willing to die. These men were willing to die. I, that can't be said of men today, per se. I hope it could be said of me. I don't even know my own will. So it wasn't about fear. It was about, well, we can only be effective if we do it this way. Unfulfilled ministry. Your works are not perfect or complete. I'm going to end today with this. Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. And as we get farther into the text next week, I just want you to think about this small commission that Paul gives a relatively unknown New Testament believer here in the New Testament. Colossians 4.17. This is what the recipient of the epistle, the saints at Colossae, were told to do. Verse 17. Say to Archippus, Archippus was obviously a member of this church, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, and thou fulfill it. Take heed to what you've been commissioned to do and do it. Sardis did not do what Paul is telling the church to communicate to Archippus here. And they became dead. Did Archippus heed what Paul said? Turn to the little book of Philemon. Philemon. This was written later. Philemon verse 2. This was written much later. Paul says, verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ and Timothy our brother unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier. He must have fulfilled what Paul told him to do because much later when Paul's sitting in prison, he's called a fellow soldier. Fellow soldier's one that does his Lord's will. We need to be like this Archippus. Take heed to the men. We're not talking about issues of eternal life and eternal damnation here. We're moving beyond that. We're not talking about eternal life and eternal damnation. We're not talking about salvation, losing salvation, any of that. We're talking about obedience. Okay? And if Christ has commissioned us to ministry or commissioned us to do something and we fail to do it, we will lapse into a dead Sardis thing. And Christ will come upon us as a thief. That coming upon us as a thief isn't necessarily a reference to eternal damnation, my friends. Every time judgment is spoken of in the New Testament, it's not talking about eternal damnation. In 1 Corinthians 11, the judgment that Paul warns about is to keep the disobedient Christians at Corinth from being condemned with the world. It's to keep them from being condemned. What's the key to escaping God's judgment in the church? Self-judgment. If we would judge ourselves, Paul says, we won't be judged. But if we are judged by the Lord, know that it is to keep us from being condemned with the world. So Christ has a role of judgment in the church that has nothing to do with eternal life and eternal damnation. It has to do with our testimony. And we may have eternal life in Christ, but do we want to stand before His throne embarrassed? Surely not. Take heed to the ministry to which you've been called and fulfill it. And let me just leave you with that exhortation today. I did not get as far as I wanted to. I like to lay groundwork. I hope this was a blessing to you. This message will be up today, the podcast, if you want to go back and catch up. And I, there is an iTunes uh, podcast that does just these messages. I hope they're a blessing to you. I don't know everything. I don't claim to. You know, maybe I'm off base about something. If you can show me Scripture, we'll talk about it. But uh, I just want to get a fuller understanding of a very important book of the Bible that's not preached from very much. And um, we can look back over history and see some important truths that mesh with the Word of God because the God of the Word is the God of history. History is just His story anyway. And so we're thankful for those that gives us, give us examples of how 
to follow Christ. Some that give us examples of how not to. And God uses those in conjunction with His Word to prick the conscience like He did with Paul on the road to Damascus. It's hard to prick, kick against the pricks. Alright, it's a little bit longer than I wanted to. I'm going to try to finish this message up next week and then we'll take a break for a month or so while I'm in South America and I'm sure your elders will have some very uh, solid meat to feed to you during that time. So it's an honor for me to share with you guys. It, it's difficult, but it's an honor. And during this season of ministry in our lives, it's been a privilege to just be here and teaching the body. Because it's not, you know, those that go out and do the work of the gospel need to be about the work of discipleship and teaching and all of that. It all works together. It's the body of Christ. Everybody's not an arm. You know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of butts in the body of Christ. <laughs> I run into them a lot on the street. Well, I like what you're doing, but... I say, you must be a bud in the body of Christ. It's always but, 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 but. I'm thankful for the but. You've got to sit down. body's got to sit down. And sometimes those but, but, buts can get us thinking about things that we need to think about, and maybe God can use it to mold us to be closer to Him. So I'm thankful for that. Hurts the pride maybe a, little, a few times. And we don't need to be sorry if we're doing what we're supposed to do, but sometimes the buts are worth listening to. Worth listening to. Got to sit down. Body's got to sit down. If I had no padding there, I don't know if I'd want to sit down. Let's pray over the food. Thanks for listening. Thanks for bearing with me. Thank you to our guests for coming and uh, pray it was a blessing to you. Father, thank you for this day. It's a beautiful Lord's Day. Thank you that we have a full house this morning, Lord, and that's just what it is, a house. Lord, uh, when you wrote to Philemon and you, you told him to greet Archippus, you wanted him to greet the church that was in his house. And Lord, what a privilege. Not that there's anything wrong with a building. Lord, nothing's wrong with that. Praise God for buildings where believers gather. But Lord, thank You that we could meet here today, even with a makeshift pulpit, and just hear Your Spirit, what He, what he has to say. Lord, may we be convicted by the Word. Lord, are we those that have a reputation that we live but we're dead? Lord, what a horrifying thought. Lord, wake us up. Help us to strengthen the things that remain like You commissioned Sardis. Lord, You've given us the sword of the Word. Give us a trowel that we can fortify what remains as we await Your coming. Lord, help us to look inward today, not outward at others. With criticism on our lips, but inward first. Teach us, Lord, what You would have us to learn. Thank You for the meal You've provided. May it give us strength and nutrition. Thank You for those that have joined us today. Thank for those that are not among us. We pray You'd lift them up and use them. For those teachers and preachers around America who are preaching the Word today, where Your name is being lifted up, we pray for the brethren, both here and around the world, some which are suffering. Thank You that the body is not one church body. It's not one believer. It's not one denomination. Lord, it's a body with Christ as the head. And Lord, we're grateful to be a part of that. May we be faithful. Not only alive to our brethren, but alive to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.